Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 13 is where we're going to try to cover. We most likely will not get all of this tonight, but at the same time, I'm going to jump around a little bit in this section. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only, uh, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, like I said in the intro before we started recording, if you know these passages, we've talked a lot. And we've probably, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard about how Jesus humbled himself. And we need to have the same mind in us that was also in Christ. And even though he was in, equal with God, he didn't claim that. And he humbled himself. And we've also looked at the passage in chapter, 12, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, about how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in us both to will and to act according to his good purpose. But I, as I said in the intro before we recorded, I never put the two together. I had never, ever done that. I've seen them separately, and I've used them in teaching. But as I was praying through this passage as to what we're going to cover each week, and I got to this section, it became so clear that this word therefore jumped off the page at me, and I'd never really seen it there. So that means you can't really understand 12 and 13 without really understanding what's happened ahead of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what's being said here in verses 5 through 11, and that's going to help us unlock verses 12 and 13. Like I said, time-wise, we might not be able to... Uh, to get there tonight, but we're going to see how far as God will take us. And I know it'll be good because he's going to be doing it and not me. But at the same time, you might want to get some paper and pen because I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures tonight. I'm going to be reading a lot of scriptures tonight. Uh, and God is going to be actually hopefully unlocking for us a part of the Christian life that we've touched on a few times in our study, but now might make so much more sense when we look at it in this context. All right. So Paul says in verse five, he gives us a command. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, think this way. In other words, think the way Jesus did or the way that is your way to think now that you are in Christ and, is in, and Christ is in you. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a lot there. He just says that we need to be thinking this way because of Christ being in us. And that's because he's in us and we, we're supposed to have him be in control of our lives and letting him live his life through us. We need to have the same mind as Christ. Now, isn't that interesting, though? Paul's saying that we need to let, think like Jesus did, yet you've heard me teach we need to let Jesus do it through us. So there's this balance. There's this wrestling match between how do I let Jesus live his life, yet at the same time the commands are for me to do something. And so that's what we're going to get into tonight as we start to look at this. So let's, before we get that far, let's just take a look at what the mind Jesus had. How did he think? How did he see himself? Well, the first thing I saw here in this passage was he knew of his exalted position. It says here that uh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in other words, he understood that he was God. And I really want to take some time to deal with this because I've been surprised over the years how many Christians or I'm going to say, quote unquote, Christians don't really understand that Jesus is God himself. And actually, folks, you need to hear me. That is the one thing that separates Christianity from everything else that pretends to be Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses pretend to be Christians. They say they're Christian, but they're not because they don't believe Jesus is God. Mormons say they're Christian, but they're not because they don't believe Jesus is God. The thing that separates real Christianity from everything else that claims to be Christian is whether or not you believe Jesus is God himself. So I want to just kind of lay this out for you. Years ago... Uh, a man in his 80s in the church in Chicago came to my office when I was pastoring up there. And he said, Jim, um, you keep acting like Jesus always existed. He didn't come around until Mary gave birth to him. 
And so I sat down in, the, in my office with this man and shared with him some of these scriptures I'm going to share with you. And it was so cool for this man in his 80s to come to faith in Christ because he didn't really understand that Jesus was God. He just thought he was a good man and we try to live by his principles. Listen to what Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says. You can all quote it with me, can't you? You don't have to turn there, do you? In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. Keep that in mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verses 1, 2, and 3. We've already seen in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the, and then verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 of, of John, we see in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We already saw in Genesis 1-1, the beginning was God, and not only that, God created the earth. All right, and the heavens. Here we see in John 1, in the beginning was this Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word was also God, and this Word created everything that was made. Oh, we know down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, but He's always existed. Go to Colossians. You're in Philippians there. Go to Colossians, one book over. Look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Again, who made the heavens and the earth? Well, which is it, God or Jesus? Yes. yes. Jesus is God. When the scripture here in Philippians says that he, even though he was equal with God, he didn't take that as something to be grasped. He didn't, he didn't take advantage of his exalted position, but he had an exalted position and he knew it. All right, let me give you a couple other ones real quick. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Sure, Satan sure did want to steal that glory from God for sure. Exodus chapter 3. And look at verses 13 and 14. This is where Moses meets God at the burning bush. Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Moses says, When I'm supposed to go and tell the, your people that their, their God has sent me, and they say, What's his name? What did God say his name was? I am. I am. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. He's been in a long discourse with the Jews here. And in verse 56 of John chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What did he say when he said, before Abraham was born, I am? I'm God. Isn't that interesting? People have tried all the years to say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Yes, he did. Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Yes, he did. In John chapter 4, he told the woman at the well, they say, well, they say Messiah is coming, and I who speak to you am he. Oh, by the way, some people might, might say, well, the Old Testament prophecies never said the Messiah was going to be God. The, the, oh, yes, they did. Isaiah 9, 6, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting. Almighty God, Everlasting. the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Folks, the scripture all along has said that Jesus is God. And you need to understand that. Jesus is God. Now, he understood his exalted position. Now, stick with me here. Because I don't want you to take this too far, but I want you to move with me to where we need to be. What did Paul say right before he said Jesus knew of his exalted position? He said, have the same mind as Jesus. Did you catch that? In other words, we too need to understand our exalted position now because of the fact that we are in Christ. And I'm going to take some time tonight to lay this out for you scripturally. And you're going to see it kind of hopefully as we put a lot of scriptures together. Uh, just, well, I can't teach it as good as scripture can say it. So we'll just go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Go to Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 6 through 10. Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you are taught, abounding in thanksgiving, and see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, is Paul saying that we're God? No, he's not saying we're God. But he's saying because of our union with Christ, we have entered into a relationship with God in the same way that Jesus did when he was on the earth in the flesh. And that's what we need to understand. Because, and you're going to see this laid out some more here in a couple other verses. Because of what happened at the moment of your salvation, because of what happened in the spiritual realm, Something happened at that moment which eternally affected you forever. And a lot of Christians honestly never really come to fully understand it. You become in him and he's in you. Actually, Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John. He said, in that day, you're going to realize that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to picture that, but you're just swimming in God right now. But what happens? We get suckered into falling prey to all the elemental principles of this world. How many of you grew up in churches that taught, yes, you were saved, but now you've got to do these things to be pleasing to God? How many of us have been taught, yes, you couldn't save yourself, God did that, but now it's up to you. We never really understood the fact that we have been truly born again, and we, the old is gone, the new has come. We've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Christ now lives within us. And because there's been confusion as to how the Spirit of God manifests that living His life through us, most Christians just try to do the best they can. As you've heard me say, we say things like when people say, how are you doing? They say, hanging in there, doing the best I can, trying to make do. If God wanted you to do the best you could and to make do and hang in there, why did He give you His Spirit? Why did He come to indwell you? And what you need to understand is that something happened at the moment you trusted Christ well, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 puts it this way. In him, you also were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But there's way more than the fact that God just marked you as his. Keep reading here in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now listen closely. Don't run through that one too quick because sometimes we run across stuff that we don't quite understand and we just move on. But there's something really cool here. I'm not going to get too crude about this, but I'm assuming everybody in the room pretty much understands what circumcision is, right? And what in circumcision, you cut away the flesh, correct? What happens to the flesh when it's cut away? And it's discarded, right? I was circumcised as a young boy back in, in Massachusetts, but uh, I, I, I'm not carrying around that piece of flesh. It was discarded. Listen closely to what happened. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What happened to you at the moment you got saved? What happened to your flesh? Now this is where we're going to struggle and we're going to get into more of this later. But supernaturally, spiritually, God cut it away. He doesn't see you in that way anymore. He sees you as the new creation. Yes, we still struggle, as Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't, things I don't want to do, I do. Uh, who, who will save me from this body of flesh? But if you also notice, he makes an interesting statement twice in that passage, and we don't have time to get in there, but he says twice in that passage, he says, now when I sin, it's no longer I who do it. It's sin living in me. So yes, we still have bodies of flesh, but something has happened supernaturally that even though we walk around in this body of flesh, it has been separated from us spiritually. That's where some of the Gnostic teachings started to come out, where they started twisting scriptural truths. Because as Paul and those were teaching the gospel and preaching this truth about the fact that when you're born again, you are born again. The old is gone. The new has come. And, and as a wonderful preacher put it one time years ago, I was listening to him. He said, he said, if you're preaching the gospel and it doesn't cause someone to say, so you're saying I can sin after I'm saved, then you haven't preached the gospel. 
Because it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Christ has done and the fact that you're a new creation. Now, at the same time, Paul said, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Who's going to give me victory over this flesh? Christ. Oh, by the way, how do we know that Jesus can give you victory over the flesh that you're still in? Not only because he said so, he did it. He did it. He's lived in this body, just like you and I, tempted in every way. By the way, I have been tempted in many ways, but I have not been tempted in every way. Oh, I know 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that there's no temptation sees you, but such is common to man. I agree. Temptations I've been tempted with are common to others, but I've never been tempted with all of them. Neither have you. Yet Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Satan came at it from all sides and he defeated the flesh because he's the only one that could because he's God. Listen closely as we keep reading here now. Read to verse 11 of chapter 2 of Colossians again with me. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, let me stop you real quick here. When you got saved, how many of your sins were forgiven? Okay, now we, we know the right answer, but don't we still struggle with the fact that something we do tomorrow, we're going to be guilty for it? Now, don't we? And I remember this one preacher was having this conversation and he was talking about this with his wife. And she goes, I know that, but... What about what do I do? To, I mean, I'm saved, but what about what I do tomorrow? Is that forgiven too? And the preacher asked his wife a wonderful question. He said, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how many of your sins were future? They all were. Folks, at the moment you trusted Christ, you were forgiven for all your sins. You need to understand your exalted position. God made alive with verse 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, it was all paid for. Now, as you're going to see, we need to continue to have the same mind as Jesus. That even though he understood his exalted position, he humbled himself in the flesh to an obedient life of yieldedness to the Father. And that's where we're going to see us go. But I want you to not move on to this next section too quick. You need to understand your exalted position. You need to understand that when Satan tries to guilt you for what you just did this week or what you're going to do tomorrow, when you start to feel that condemnation, Romans 8.1 says... Well, let me read it to you. Go to Romans 8, 1, and then I'm going to show you here something real clear in that passage. Romans 8, look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has already done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now for years, I read that first part and thought, oh, that sounds great. But then I get to that last verse and I'm thought, oh, well, sometimes I walk according to the flesh. But he clarifies that. Look at verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and my body is decaying and so is yours, and you can hear it in my voice tonight that mine is decaying, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Folks, what he's saying is this. Even though we live in bodies that are still under the curse of sin, even though we're still struggling with temptation, Jesus was struggling with temptation. I used to think 
that the further I got in my walk, the less I'd be tempted. I had this weird thinking of the more I matured as my walk with Christ, the less temptation, and I'd be, I would kind of float over all that kind of stuff as I grew. And, I, and it used to bother me to find myself still struggling with certain temptations. Until one day I was reading that Jesus was tempted in the garden. And I thought, good grief. I mean, he was perfect right to the point of death. Yet he was tempted. And God lovingly whispered in my ear and he said, Jim, um, you're going to be tempted till you die. You need to learn to let me take over. How do we do it? That's been the big question. It's answered here in Philippians chapter 2. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ, which is also yours in Christ. In other words, do you catch that? It's not, we don't have to think like Jesus. It's available to us right now because Jesus is in us. I love how the ESV clarifies that. Have the same mind, this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though Jesus had the freedom to choose because he had an exalted position, he chose to humble himself and take on the role of a servant. I'm going to ask you an honest question that makes everybody uncomfortable. As a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ, do you have the freedom to sin? Yes, you do. You have, God's given you the choice whether or not you're going to yield to his spirit or not. Does that mean you're not saved? No. No, no the Bible does say that if people live in that continual state, there's probably good evidence that they're not. The Bible talks about that in 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 5. Those, the ones born of God cannot go on sinning because the one born of God protects them. And, and the fact, you know full well, you still struggle with sin and you'll be tempted till the day you die, but you know how it doesn't taste good when you do it, does it? You know the immediate sense of that, that, that conviction. It's not a condemnation. If you're hearing condemna condemnation, you're hearing the wrong voice. But your father points out your sin, he does it in a loving way, but at the same time, your spirit, you know there's some, that's one of the most real evidences to me that I'm truly born again. Sin doesn't feel good. Sin doesn't feel good, and I thank God for it. I thank God for it. Yet at the same time, Jesus, even though he was free to choose. Now you say, Jim, he really wasn't. Oh, yeah, he was. Let me show you something in Matthew. I all of a sudden remembered a song my mom used to sing. I haven't heard this song in a long time. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 54. And you've been saved because my voice tonight, I'm not going to try to sing it. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 54, my mom had a tenor voice. You know, the mama sang day, bass, daddy sang tenor. In our house, mama sang tenor. Listen to chapter 26 of Matthew 47 through 54. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Remember the old song, he could have called 10,000 angels? Remember, some of you are probably too young to remember that one, but I remember that one. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Folks, did Jesus have a choice? Yes, yes he did. He didn't have to obey. Exactly. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, he humbled himself. He had an exalted position, but he chose to humble himself and yield himself to the Father's commands. We, this is how we let Jesus live his life through us. We have an exalted position. You are in Christ. You are born again. You are a new creation. You are as covered by Jesus' blood as you'll ever will be. You are signed, sealed, and delivered. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says we're already seated in the heavenly realms. Folks, you need to understand 
that you have already, because of Christ, done away with sin. Yet, we still live in a body, like Jesus did, that is tempted. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not teaching sinless perfection that it's possible as a Christian to live totally without sin, but I am teaching you this much. I think that many of us could have a far greater victory over sin than we do because we don't understand what it means to yield ourselves to the Father. We try to defeat sin by ourselves. We try to stop doing it. We think, I'm not going to do that again. Or we'll walk an aisle and cry a tear and, and pledge to the Lord. Lord, I'm going I'm to do better for you. I'm going to live for you, Lord. Have we ever done that? I mean, the preachers ask us to come and rededicate ourselves. We, we don't even realize what we're being asked to do is rededicate our flesh. Lord, I'm going to do a better job. And Jesus says, why are you wasting your time? You can't. But as Jesus was tempted in every way, he humbled himself and only did what the Father said to do. Now, remember, we've already seen in this passage in Philippians, Paul's hoping to help them in the progress of their faith. What I want to see is in your life a growth in this area where you, well, you're not going to be sinless, but you'll sin less. Amen. You're going to see in a second, this whole section laid out in the section of Romans, everything we're looking at here. But I want to show you a couple things here. Um, well, let's go to there now. Let's just go now. Go to Romans 6. Let's go to Romans 6. I'm going to read to you all of chapter 6. Because <clears throat> Paul lays this all out in Romans chapter 6. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, what, then, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He just said it doesn't matter how much sin there is. God's grace covers it. He said, are we to keep on sinning so we get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, take off the grave clothes like he told Lazarus. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Remember, he, in our circumcision, we received spiritually cut away the flesh so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Have this mind among yourselves. You need to understand your exalted position. You have the ability to say no to sin, but not in your own power, but by yielding to the one who now lives within you, who lived in this body and defeated it. And that's why we have to learn to pray without ceasing. That's why we have to learn to continually live in a communication with the Father and a yieldedness to the Spirit, a sensing of His presence. And, and the Bible just talks about our understanding of our need and the abiding relationship. We've got to move out of an understanding of Christianity that makes us think that we go to church and we do our Christian things and hopefully it'll affect us for a few days or a few hours. But understand that real Christianity has nothing really to do with what happens on the Sunday worship service, but has more to do with the every single day as we walk in yieldedness to Christ. But what have we done over the years? The, the picture we have painted of Christianity has been a picture of rules and regulations. You got to wear a certain thing or you got to have a certain kind of Bible or these types of things. And we start judging each other by outward things, even though the scripture said in Colossians chapter two, verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by whether or not you keep a new moon festival or a Sabbath day. These are all a shadow of what was to come. The reality has been found in Christ Jesus. These things have an appearance of controlling the flesh, but they really don't. He goes on and says there. And so, folks, what I want you to understand is, is here we need to consider ourselves and understand that we are dead to sin. Are we still tempted? Yes. So was Jesus. How do he do? And he can do it again. You've heard me say before, Vance Habner puts it real well. He says there's only been one Christian life that's ever been lived. And Jesus lived it. And he wants to live it again through you and me every single day. Now, keep reading, though. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, does he act like we have control? Doesn't he act like we have control in that verse? He says, don't let sin reign. In other words, you've heard me say this before. In my years of being a pastor, in the 20 years I pastored in different parts of the country, I, I'm not real good at counseling. Because people want me to kind of walk them through it and pat them. And I, I'm, I'm, I, you've heard me say this before. I took a spiritual gift test. I got a zero in mercy. Becky said they scored me way too high. My, my motto in counseling is cry a river, build a bridge, get over it. But <laughs> seriously, and, and many times because of what the scripture says, I would say to people, just stop. Just stop. I remember I was dealing with a man years ago at this one church who had a sexual addiction, he said. And I believe those are real. And he's sitting there with his wife and it was ruining their marriage because of other affairs. And I looked at him and I said, the Bible says one of the evidences of the spirit is self-control. He got so mad. Are you questioning my salvation? I said, no, no, I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm just showing you that if you let Christ have control, you say you're in Christ. If you let Christ have control, you, you can have victory over this. Paul puts it pretty blunt. Don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. It'll make more sense as we keep going here. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, this body parts, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. By the way, let me just say real quick, for those that try to teach you that you can lose your salvation, if Paul taught that and the Bible taught that, here are two wonderful places that he could have said, be careful. If, if there was such a thing as losing your salvation, and that was a true doctrine, Paul would have taught it right here because he would have said when they said, hey, can we keep on sinning? He'll say, oh, be careful because you might lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. Are we to keep on sinning because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you know, not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you, were once present, as you once presented your members or your body parts as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members or your body parts as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he say here? He says the same thing we're looking at in Philippians chapter 2. He says you need to understand your exalted position. You have been baptized with Christ in his death. Your flesh has been put away with. It's been cut off. You are now separated from it because of the spirit of God within you. And the same victory Jesus had over the flesh, he now continually has because he died and flesh has no temptation to him anymore. He's no longer. Now, by the way, you need to understand that even though you and I are still tempted, Jesus living within us is not tempted anymore. It's even easier for him. And then he says, you choose who you're going to obey. So what does Paul say here in Philippians 2? He says, you need to have the same mindset that was, is, is yours in Christ Jesus. Even though he understood his exalted position, and we need to understand our exalted position, he chose to humble himself and become obedient to the commands of the Father, and that's all he did. By the way, that'll send me off on a whole tangent that I don't have time to get into now. But I want you to understand, to be a real Christian means you only do what Jesus tells you to do, not what the preacher tells you to do, or what the nominating committee tells you to do, or the personnel committee tells you to do. You find out what it is that Jesus tells you to do. And I'll be preaching on that in a couple weeks at First Merritt Island, and I can't wait. But let me just tell you, right now, I want you to understand, Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 19, said it this way. He said, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing. You need to understand that God has given us commands. He's given us instructions. You want to start learning to let the Spirit of God have control? Do what it says. 
What does it say in James chapter 2, uh, chapter 5, verse 22? Chapter 1, sorry, verse 22. Don't deceive yourself by just reading the word. Do what it says. So folks, I, I, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. You want to have victory over sin? Do what it says. Oh, actually, go back to Philippians chapter 2 and let's jump over verses 9, 10, and 11 and come to verses 12 and 13 and tell me if this doesn't make a whole lot more sense now. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always what? Obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This passage is tied to the context of this other section here. How do we work out our salvation? Well, first of all, we have to understand our exalted position. We have been given salvation. It's done. All, you're, you're, you're secure. Now, we need to work it out. Those of you that work with uh, lifting weights and stuff like that, you have muscles, but if you exercise them, they can actually get stronger. Right? If you don't, they shrivel. That doesn't mean you don't have muscle. People say, well, you don't have any muscle. It's still there. It's just atrophied. But if you exercise it, it gets stronger. You have a wonderful salvation. You need to understand your position in Christ. Think back about Jesus. When he walked around on the earth, was all hell going after him? Does he ever seem freaked out? Yeah. He's standing before Pilate, who he knows is about to sentence him to death, or at least wash his hands so everybody else will sentence him to death. And what does he say when Pilate says, don't you speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to have you put to death or to have you released? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any power over me unless it was given to you from above. In other words, you can't do anything to me unless God lets it happen. Yet we walk around worried, fearful, anxious, trying to control. I, I, I was raised that way and I have a tendency to be like that myself. I, I want to kind of keep things in control because I can protect bad things from happening. I tried to pastor that way too, about killed me. I wanted to put out all the fires before they started because I wanted everything to be smooth. But actually, if you really understand that now that I'm in Christ, Satan can do nothing to me without my father's permission. And when he says yes, it's for his purpose. We can walk through life with a little bit lower blood pressure, folks. We can honestly just say, all right, Lord, what do you have in mind? That's how Paul and Silas could sing in prison at midnight, not knowing why God told them to keep the Roman citizen card in their pocket, but they, were, they took the beating. That's why they were able to worship him. I don't know what songs they were singing, but they probably sounded like this, God's got a plan. <laughs> when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Remember that one? Folks, let me just tell you, how do we work out our salvation? We first of all understand our exalted position, and Satan can do nothing without the Father's permission. Who lives within you now? God. And how did the demons react whenever they saw Jesus walking on this earth? They trembled. They freaked out. If you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time, when you and I walk around on this earth. I'm going to share this with you years ago, but I don't remember if I have or not. But years ago, um, I actually had to deal with a situation with demons. Not something that I've dealt with a lot. But I'm actually at this house with uh, Jim Capel and uh, a lady named Martha. And this uh, young girl, and uh, she's 18 years old had played with Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff, and she started getting into demonology. Folks, let me just tell you something real quick. Do you believe that you can accept Jesus into your heart? Yes. All right, you can invite demons in too. And there's roads down that path that a lot of kids think are just fun. And they open themselves up to spirit guides, and there's a danger, and this young girl had done so. And she, this lady had visited the church, the, the mother had, and her 18-year-old daughter, and like a 12-year-old daughter, and she called this lady Martha because Martha had befriended her when they visited and said, you need to get over here. Things are flying around the house. Things are just jumping off the walls and we can't go to sleep. Martha called me and Jim and we went over to the house. And uh, I, two hours I sat in that house and I preached to this girl. I mean, I, I gave her every scripture I know and you know that's a lot. She just stared at me the whole time. So I just felt like we were done, and so we got up, and we walk out the door. As soon as we close the front door, the, the mother comes running back saying, you got to get back in here. She's tearing the house up. And we could see the 18-year-old was just tearing the house up. 
a weird thing happened. Martha turned to us both and she said, I'm supposed to go in by myself. And that made him and I do, everything in us was like, no, you never, but we just felt like the Spirit of God said yes. So we stayed on the front porch praying as Martha went in. Half an hour later, she comes out and she introduces us to this 18-year-old who totally looks different. She said, would you like to meet your new sister in Christ? We were excited, but we went back into the house. This all happened three, four in the morning. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm baffled, you know. I, I even asked her. I said, look, I, I, I taught you scriptures. I spoke the word for two hours. Martha goes in for half an hour and you get saved. What's going on? This is what she said. She said, I couldn't hear anything you said for the whole two hours that you were talking to me. The voice in my head kept saying, I don't want him here. I don't want him here. I don't want him here. And I never heard a word you said. As we left that house, I rejoiced. Because I, I want you to see Jesus in me. But I love it that the demons see Jesus in me. They weren't afraid of me. Uh, you saw in the story in the book of Acts where these guys said, oh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And the demon said, yeah, we know who Jesus is. And we've heard about Paul, but nah, we ain't afraid of you. When you walk around with Jesus in you, the demons see Jesus. Folks, you're not in some out-of-control plan. God's working everything out. Well, we'll go back to verse 13. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to deal with this in a lot more detail next week. I'm not going to really dive into that. But look at what he's saying here. He's saying, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, he's saying you've got this wonderful exalted position and you have the ability now to choose to obey him and yield yourself to the spirit of God. You can do it, but you have to take this serious. And that's what this fear and trembling means. And I'm going to show you. Whenever you deal with a passage of scripture and you're not really sure what it means, like I told you before, use scripture to interpret scripture. God wrote the whole thing. And how he meant it here is how he's going to mean it over here as well. So I'm going to, I went looking for, is there another place that Paul talks about fear and trembling? And there is. It's in uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. Now I'm going to read a, a bigger section here, the, the verses 5 through 16, but we're going to get to the, near the end of it is where we hit that section we're going to get into. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 5. Paul says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is, was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you should suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, for we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Look closely what happens. Paul had written a letter to the church and he was a hard letter. As you know, there are people that accused him of being real tough in his, language, in his letters, but when he shows up, he's not so tough. And he had written a strong letter to them, and he was dealing with somebody that had sinned and someone that had been sinned against in that church, but he hit with a shotgun. And in doing so, a group of the people there in that church 
took it serious and they were like, no, that's, that's, that's not how we feel about Paul. That's not who we really are. And when Titus was sent, they took his visit seriously and they repented. I love how he put it here. Um, verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Let me ask you a question. How earnest are you? How serious are you about your salvation? Are you thankful for it to the point that that is the focus of your life? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is not worrying about whether or not you'll lose it. Working out your salvation is being serious and earnest about your salvation. It should be the most important thing of your whole life. And by the way, your salvation is much more than the day you got saved. As you've heard me teach, it's the day you got saved along with the, the sanctification process and culminates in the glorification process. Is everything you do tied into the fact that you're in Christ? Is every thought you think, every action you take, as you even heard us say, as we were praying about the cruise, we literally hung up the phone with the travel agent and went in separate rooms to go pray. Why? Because we think God speaks. And we were wrestling with it, but we want to do what God wants us to do, and peace or no peace. And then when the circumstances didn't line up with what we thought we heard, we continued on until God revealed his full plan. It's a relationship. Folks, you have an exalted position. You, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. The flesh is gone. You're not going to be judged by what you do in the flesh in that way. You are signed, sealed, and delivered now. You need to take serious this salvation you've been given. Don't say, thank God I'm saved. I just want to go to heaven. No, no. Take serious because if the fact you're still here means that God's got a purpose that he's trying to accomplish through you. When he's done with you, he'll take you. When David had served his purpose in his generation, Paul said in the sermon in Acts 13, 36, when David had served his purpose in his generation, he died. When you're done with your purpose and you might not understand what it is, you might be wondering why you're still here. You might be asking all those questions. Let me just tell you, you may not know the answer to the question, but you can, answer, you can at least have this answer. God has a purpose. And do you trust that he does? And what do I do then? You live out the relationship with Christ that you've been given. You take serious this salvation. You live an understanding of your exalted position and you yield yourself to him. And whatever you think his word tells you to do, do it. Whatever you think his spirit's telling you to do that lines up with the word, do it. Jesus, who even though he was God and had the ability to say yes or no, humbled himself and yielded himself to obedience to God, even death on a cross. He said yes in obedience to him in the toughest of all ways. So, is God telling you to forgive somebody? I love you. Do it. I can't. I know you can't. But Jesus in you can. And if you walk in obedience to what he said, he takes over. You walk in obedience to what he said, he takes you. I can't share my faith. Jesus said to. Just go do it. He'll give you the words. Stop trying to learn the formulas. Stop thinking there's nothing wrong with learning different methods of sharing the gospel or certain scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't think there's a certain formula for it. Stop fighting with each other over the way to share the gospel. Too many people probably write in the books about how this is the only way. Just go do it. Just go do it. Oh, we'll get into this more next week. But you're about to see that when we start to act, who is it that's actually working through us? God who works in you. Oh, look closely. Not only to do what needs to be done, but what's that first word? What's another word for will? The desire. He'll give you the desire. He'll give you the desire. He will give you the desire to even be the way you want. He, he's ready. That's why he asked us to pray. I won't get into that. We'll get into that next week. But let me just, we'll wrap up with this, the verses we left off. Go back to verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, because Jesus did not abuse his exalted position for his own purposes, but willingly and humbly took on the role of an obedient servant, God has exalted him in an amazing way. Look at what it says in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
By the way, um, I just, as I was reading that, was reminded as we've been thinking about how Jesus lives with this understanding of everything being under the Father's control. In Revelation chapter 6, in the tribulation period, those souls who are killed during the tribulation, they're under the altar and they cry out, how long till you avenge our blood? And what does he, he does? He just hands them white robes and says, hey, just wait. Till the rest of them are going to be killed. Just wait. It's all right on schedule. John the Baptist is sitting in prison and say, are you the one or should we look for someone else? I know I said you were the one. I know I said I told everybody I saw the Spirit come down. And, and, I, and I know I said that I wasn't worthy to untie your shoes, but I'm not so sure now. Jesus says, you just go back and tell John everything's right on schedule. Oh, by the way, uh, who'd you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? No, you didn't go to see someone wishy-washy. You saw a prophet. Let me just tell you, of men born of women, none's risen greater than John the Baptist. You ever thought about how Jesus looks at you? See, we have been listening to the wrong teaching for too long. When John was thinking bad about Jesus and feeling doubt and when the two men on the road to Emmaus, we thought he was the one. Well, even some of our women said that they went to the tomb and, they didn't, and he wasn't there. And two of our men went and they checked it. And well, we just don't know. Who chased him as they went seven miles from Jerusalem back to Emmaus? Who, who went and chased him down? Jesus. Jesus. Oh, listen. As they were walking along, they were kept from recognizing him. There are going to be times for his purposes. He's going to be right there, and he's not going to let you know it. And you're going to have to walk by faith. But when it was time, he opened their eyes. Oh, it didn't last long. Then he disappeared again. But they knew what they were to do, and they went running back to go do it. The Bible says that because Jesus, let me read it to you again, because Jesus didn't abuse his exalted position for his own purposes, but willingly and humbly took on the role of an obedient servant, God has exalted him to, in an amazing way. Keep in mind, by the way, there are those out there that are teaching dominion theology, which says because of who you are in Christ, we can just claim power over everything. Hebrews 2 says it really clearly, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Yet we do not see everything subject to him at this time. If everything is not subject to Jesus, who are you to think that everything's subject to you? Don't fall prey to that bad teaching. You have to understand your exalted position. Too many Christians don't know their exalted position. Yet at the same time, you need to not claim it and abuse it. You now need to humble yourself and say, okay, Lord, because of that, how would you, what is the life you have for me? By the way, the Bible says we too will experience a future reward of eternal glory if we're willing to submit ourselves to God's plan for our lives, even if it involves suffering. I'm going to read to you three passages. Go to Romans chapter 8. We'll wrap up with this. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And by the way, I wish I could preach at all times because I haven't felt better in the last couple of days except for this time that I've been preaching. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Are you willing to lay down your rights? What if the life that God has for you is singleness? What if the life God has for you is cancer? What if the life God has for you is, well, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? What if the life God has for you is different from the one next to you? What if the life God has for you is not the life you had in mind? What if? But I'm a, I'm a child of God. Yeah. Understand your exalted position, but don't abuse it for your own purposes. Have the same mind among you, which was also in Christ, and submit yourself to whatever life he has for you. Oh, and you're going to find that's what rest is. That's where you'll find rest. Because his yoke for you is easy. His yoke for me is not going to be easy for you, and his burden for me is not going to be light for you. But his yoke for you is easy, and his burden is light. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I love this passage. Verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I say amen to that tonight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also 
be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised Je the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may excuse me, increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not only to the things that are seen, but also the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. By the way, who wrote this light and momentary affliction? Was it a guy who had an easy life? Was it John who, what if he remains alive till I return? No, it was the same guy that had been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, dragged outside the city, uh, you, you name it, imprisoned. One last one, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's your inspiration for how to, work, how to motivate you, if you will, to work out your salvation and take it serious with earnestness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses or examples as we've seen through the Hebrews chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, it goes on, look at verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, what, did what does that scripture say? Jesus, what did he have in mind that kept him going to be obedient to the Father? The end result, which was what? The glory. The reward. Oh, but there's more than that. If you go back and look at John 17, as he's praying in the garden, this is what his prayer was. Remember, this is part of the prayer that is, we have recorded. It's the prayer that he prayed so earnestly that drops of blood were coming from his forehead. He said, Father, I want you to restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. I'm looking forward to getting out of this body. I know that feeling. Well, well, well. But then he also says at the end of that prayer, I want those you have given me to be with me and to see me. Amen. It's not just that, but it's us. And I don't know how this all works, but if we're willing to humble ourselves and understand our exalted position, but yield ourselves to whatever God says, just do it. I'm believing that God will work it through and I will, we'll get into that next week. And you go through this life of struggle, which might mean a divorce when you didn't want a divorce. Which might be in rebellious ch children and you tried to teach them the right way. And all these things. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Are you going to humble yourself and submit yourself to obedient following of the Lord in whatever life he has for you? The Bible says he will one day reward you. Well, I could show you, but I'm not going to take the time. The Bible actually says he'll pay you back a hundred times as much. So I don't know about you, this world has lost its, its appeal to me. I am looking forward, but it doesn't mean I'm ready to leave. I'm not suicidal, but at the same time, I now am learning even more and more to focus on being obedient to what he said, because one day, I believe everything he said in here is true. The Bible says one day, this light and momentary affliction is going to have an eternal glory that outweighs it all. And I don't know about you, I got a pretty good imagination. The Bible says, mind is not conceived, nor eyes seen, nor ears heard what the Father has in store for those who love him. Oh, but he has given us glimpses of it through his spirit, the next verse says. So with that in mind, let's all try to say no to the, to, to the flesh this week. Well, Paul said say no. That's it. I'm a new creature. Now, don't focus on sin. Pursue Jesus. And watch what happens. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. I thank you for the way you gave me the grace. And I didn't even really have a cough the whole time. 
Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, the fact that your word, if we let it just speak for itself, is, is so alive and so exciting. Lord, I thank you for these that come with a desire to, to hear. Lord, I thank you for those that are listening online and those that couldn't be here tonight for whatever reason. Lord, may we not just hear what it says. May we do it. Because I know from experience, as your word has said, anybody that puts these things into practice will find out what I'm saying is true. Lord, may we do that. May the world see that you're real. We pray this in your name.